has been solved. That doesn't change the basic fact that our goose is pretty well cooked. Things fall apart. The center does not hold. Man in yeats, Zeta. I didn't understand that poem in college, Lynn. But I must be getting smarter in my old age because I understand it now. And one other line from that poem. What a rough beast. Its power come round at last. Slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. I think that beast might be on his way, Len. What do you think? Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Tonight, we are concerned with M.K. Naomi. Uh, Naomi was a joint Department of Defense and CIA top secret program, and it was focused on developing and refining new methods of biological and chemical warfare. Now, because it's such a kind of sprawling and messy topic. The plan is to um, experiment with a kind of a magazine format tonight. So there will be uh, four sections, I think four, and we'll be exploring different aspects of MK Naomi and connected research and uh, development programs that were adjacent to it. And we'll also be looking at its evolution and its legacy as well. So the problem with trying to talk about MK Naomi is that there's still so much that we don't really know about it. Um, it's possibly the most obvious example of what the CIA cult of intelligence looks like in practice. Um, you have this, you know, obsessive need for compartmentalization and secrecy combining with the agency's strange... Um, dare I say, esoteric infatuation with transgression and, and violating any sense of decency or morality. And all of this really happened as well. That's the thing. And it's still happening. 
um, for my money, which I'll attempt to demonstrate as we go along. So yeah, if you are strapped in, then let's begin. So we do have some documents and some testimony on the record from people involved. Most of this came out during the inquiries of the, the 1970s, you know, the Church Commission and so on. We've gone on at length about that in recent episodes. But much of the information in the public domain is only there because the agency deemed it safe to release. And as frightening as what we do know about Naomi is, you have to remember there's plenty more we'll probably never find out, you know. Uh, people can't even agree on when it began. And as with MKUltra and other covert CIA research projects, there's a very good chance that it never really ended. You know, it's entirely possible they just shredded and burned the most incriminating documents, you know, made a few disclosures to uh, satisfy the press, and then waited for the hubbub to die down and resumed operations under a different code name once they felt it was safe to do so. In fact, I will go out on a limb now and say that is definitely what happened. Now, at the time the CIA created MK Naomi, this is around 1952 or 1953, there was also a biological and chemical warfare program that was being run by the US Army Chemical Corps. And you can think of the CIA as running a covert project and the chemical corps running a more overt one. That's the way a researcher called Jeffrey Kay has um, described it. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Now, because the agency and the army often worked together and pooled their information, you know, and the army special operations command conducted a lot of experiments on behalf of the CIA, there's plenty of overlap between the two, you know. And there's also plenty of overlap with MKUltra, since Naomi was obviously staffed by people from the agency's technical services division, and they used a lot of the same scientists and so on. So it can be very difficult to untangle all of this. And there may be points in this episode where we can only really speculate as to how likely or not it was that a given experiment or research program fell under the umbrella of MK Naomi. But if you go to the Wikipedia page um, for the program, the opening line says that it began in the 1950s and lasted until the 1970s. But I think it's safe to say that the CIA had an interest in developing new biological and chemical weapons from the moment that it was created in 1947. MK Naomi just became the name they gave it later, you know, this, this field of research they were involved in. And if MKUltra was inspired in large part by experiments that the Nazis had conducted in the concentration camps, then MK Naomi was very much influenced by what Japan's scientists had been exploring during the war, specifically the guys at Unit 731. At some point in 1947, a certain um, Lieutenant General Shiro Ishii was brought to Fort Dietrich in Frederick in Maryland. And he was brought there to give a series of lectures about his research for the Japanese army during the war. Now, Dietrich had been the center 
of the US Army's new biological warfare uh, laboratories program for four years at this point. And it had been created on the orders of FDR because he was worried that the other allies and the Axis powers had pulled way ahead of America in terms of um, biological and chemical weapons capability. Now, initially, this program was supervised by the War Research Service, which was a civilian agency that was given oversight of the military's chemical warfare service. And according to um, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Clendenin, the level of secrecy around this program was as strict as the Manhattan Project. The WRS was led by George Merck. Uh, he was the president of a pharmaceutical company called Merck & Co. Now Merck can trace its history all the way back to 1668. And at some point, I think it will probably profit us to do a really big series about Merck because it's pretty um, interesting. As of 2022, its assets are valued at $105 billion. And like any self-respecting big pharma outfit, it has its fair share of skeletons, you know, from um, overbilling on Medicaid to tax fraud to creating a drug for male pattern baldness that causes um, persistent erectile dysfunction and uh, can exacerbate pre-existing mental health issues and, and trigger suicidal ideation as well. They've linked about 115 suicides to it. Um, so, I mean, just shave it off. You know, blade one, liberate yourselves. So anyway, uh, Dr. Ira L. Baldwin had been appointed as Dietrich's first scientific director in 1942. Now, Baldwin was a bacteriologist, and under his guidance, the facility began uh, developing whatever biological and chemical agents they believed were necessary to hasten the end of the war. So in no time at all, they had a merry stockpile of viruses and gases and nerve agents, and they were developing some pretty far out gadgets as well, you know. So we're talking poison darts that would melt on penetrating the human body, that kind of, you know, the really highfalutin James Bond stuff. Now, by the time World War II was ending and the Cold War was ramping up, Dietrich had acquired the nickname Fort Doom, and its scientists had expanded into researching the use of airborne pathogens, you know, developing new chemical weapons that could wipe out entire fields of crops and cities. In 1950, Look Magazine wrote a piece about the US chemical and biological uh, programs in which they said, quote, the Truman administration has summoned scientists as never before, from their peacetime workbenches to the task of bettering the tools of war. In the Pentagon and in hundreds of labs and proving grounds from White Sands, New Mexico to Aberdeen, Maryland, these scientists are engaged in a vast program, opening up awesome vistas of mass destruction and death. And what gave the Yankee a boost here? was the knowledge of people like Shiro Ishii. Um, because as part of Unit 731, he and his men had been on the cutting edge of research into bio-warfare. And the way they got there was through sheer 
psychopathic indifference to human suffering. And Ishii himself had been a highly respected microbiologist just prior to the outbreak of World War II. And he was a very early champion of the need for a bioweapons program in Japan. Um, he'd gotten the idea after he spent some time, you know, traveling around Europe and America after World War I. And he extensively researched the use of chemical weapons in Europe. And um, he'd been very impressed by the efficacy of, you know, things like chlorine, uh, phosgene and mustard gas. He was convinced that developing even more effective and extreme um, biological agents would be crucial in, in establishing Japan as a dominant world power, as the dominant world power. And, you know, as ever with this kind of thing, you have various sickos essentially uh, setting down and picking up batons, you know, because that's just how the march of human progress um, proceeds. So here, Ishii picked up where the Allies and Axis powers left off in World War I, and then at the end of World War II, he returned to America to share what he'd discovered in the course of his own research. Now, Unit 731 was split into eight divisions. The first was bacteriological research, second, warfare research and field experiments, third, water filter production, fourth, bacteria mass production and storage, fifth, educational division, sixth, supplies division, seventh, general affairs, and eighth, clinical diagnosis. The unit was located in the, uh, the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo um, in a district called Pingfang, and Ishii had chosen this as the site for the Unit 731 complex precisely because of how um, remote and isolated it was. So from 1935 to the end of World War II, the unit engaged in lethal experiments on human guinea pigs, and the vast majority of them were Chinese. Now here's a description of what you might have seen on a tour of the facility uh, if you had the security clearance at the height of its operations. Quote, 70% of the prisoners were Chinese. Unsuspecting and innocent people were tricked into the clutches of Unit 731. Some were lured by the prospect of employment. Young boys, mothers and children, even pregnant women, were trapped. Throughout the existence of Unit 731 in Pingfan, 3,000 people were sacrificed. The prison was a vision of hell. Through the spy hole cut in the steel doors of each cell, the plight of the chained prisoners could be seen. Some had rotting limbs, bits of bone protruding through skin blackened by necrosis. Others were sweating in high fever, writhing in agony or moaning in pain. Those who suffered from respiratory infections coughed incessantly. Some were bloated, some emaciated, others were blistered or had open wounds. Many of the cells were communal. An infected person would be put with healthy prisoners to see how easily diseases spread. In desperation, prisoners would try to practice primitive preventive medicine to escape contagion. Female prisoners were raped daily and sexual abuse and torture was routine among the guards. The doctors used various methods of dispersing disease. They could be sprayed invisibly in gas chambers or in food, drink, chocolates, melons, or crackers. The average um, life expectancy 
of a Unit 731 prisoner was two months. And this is from a scientist called Dr. Sueo Akimoto. Quote, I was very shocked when I arrived and found out about the human experiments. Very few of their scientists had a sense of conscience. They treated the prisoners like animals. The prisoners were the enemy. They would eventually be sentenced to death. They thought the prisoners would die an honorable death if, in the process, they contributed to the progress of medical science. I was very frightened, although my work involved no human experiments. I wrote my resignation to Major General Kikuchi, the research chief, three or four times, but there was no way to get out. I was told that if I left, I might be executed. What Ishii was especially interested in was using insects carrying viruses as weapons, and he was um, especially taken with the idea of using fleas infected with bubonic plague to facilitate the extermination of the Chinese population. In fact, there are many accounts of uh, prisoners being infected with diseases like bubonic plague and then being dissected while they were still conscious. Um, the thinking was that if they were unconscious, it might prejudice the results of the experiment. You know, They wanted to see what a person's insides looked like while they were, they were riddled with uh, plague. Now, Ishii's intention was to create epidemics that would bog down the local infrastructure of a target area, weaken the enemy military, and then enable Japan's army to sweep through unimpeded. The Japanese Air Force, in fact, flew several missions where they dropped infected fleas on Chinese cities, and they also poisoned water supplies and crops, or they handed out ration kits infected with typhoid, anthrax, cholera, malaria, and so on. In all, 11 Chinese cities were attacked with bioweapons and between half a million to a million Chinese civilians alone died from the ensuing epidemics. The Japanese were even gearing up to fly kamikaze missions into cities like San Diego and Los Angeles with planes loaded up with various you know, chemical and biological bombs and then Japan surrendered and the, this mission was called off. I bring all this up by way of um, saying again, not for the first time, how it isn't entirely accurate to say that the fascism of the Axis powers was defeated at the end of World War II. I know I sound like a broken record sometimes, but you know, again, it was simply incorporated into the new post-war liberal consensus and its more excessive tendencies were kind of pruned back or else channeled to work for the West. If you're a long-time listener, you'll be aware of Operation Paperclip. That's when the Allies cut secret deals with key figures in the Nazi Reich, you know, the scientists, the captains of industry, the spooks and so on. And they granted them immunity in exchange for them becoming assets or going to work on top secret US defense projects or, you know, even the space program. Essentially, the same thing happened with um, the Japanese after the war. Uh, General MacArthur granted Unit 731 near blanket immunity in exchange for their research data. And Edwin Hill, a US microbiologist, described Ishii's papers as invaluable. 
That was the word he used. And although, you know, he largely vanished from public life, he, she did, after his immunity deal was in place. It was his reputation and his wartime experiences that led to him being invited to Fort Detrick in 1947. And from the outset, the US security state's bioweapon program and the research conducted under MK Naomi was deeply, fundamentally influenced by the work of outfits like Unit 731, just like MK Ultra had drawn on the Nazi experiments at Auschwitz and Dachau and so on. So from the beginning, genocidal intent was encoded into these projects. And I should point out that, you know, I'm not saying the Japanese were the sole inspiration for the US government's own program of biowarfare, you know, that without them, the Americans would never have dreamed of going as far as they did. I mean, you only have to read up about um, the syphilis studies to see how the US has had no trouble coming up with, you know, racist, psychotic medical experiments of its own volition. And if anything, the work of, of um, Unit 731 only turbocharged pre-existing research efforts. You know, uh, you, the Americans accommodated Unit 731's work quite easily. And for some additional idea of how far over the line the US government had already stepped before they hooked up with the members of um, Unit 731. Look back to 1931 and the work of Dr. Cornelius Rhodes. Rhodes, sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, by the way, he embarked on what he essentially admitted was a genocidal mission against the people of uh, Puerto Rico by deliberately infecting them with live cancer cells. Rhodes would later go on to head up the U.S. Army's bioweapons division. And writing about his work in Puerto Rico, he said, quote, I have done my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight Puerto Ricans and transplanting cancer into several more. All physicians take delight in the abuse and torture of the unfortunate subjects. If there is some residual skepticism here about the, the claim of genocidal intent, then let's take a very brief look at the Korean War. Now, we've already mentioned this before uh, in the MK Ultra episode, I believe. But anyway, Al Jazeera interviewed an American prisoner of war called Kenneth Enoch in 2010. Enoch had confessed to dropping bombs on Korea, loaded with mosquitoes that were carrying yellow fever. And naturally, the US government said that his confession had been coerced by the evil brainwashing techniques of the heathen communists, you know, and so on and so forth. This was in part what they used to justify um, their own forays into mind fucking with MK Ultra. But there were, I think there were around 19 American POWs all in all who made similar confessions. Anyway, when Enoch spoke to Al Jazeera, he was insistent, adamant that his confession was real. Uh, Wilfred Burkett, who was a, an Australian journalist, he also documented how villagers in uh, Chukdong had been discovering flies and mosquitoes that weren't native to that region. It's like the border region of China and Korea. And these insects had appeared shortly before unexplained 
widespread outbreaks of smallpox and meningitis and yellow fever. Another American prisoner of war called um, Frank Schwab stated in a confession that was taped by North Korean authorities in February of 53, uh, by which time MK Naomi was well underway, quote, the general plan for bacteriological warfare in Korea was directed by the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff in October 1951. In that month, the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent a directive by hand to the Commanding General, Far East Command, at that time General Ridway, directing the initiation of bacteriological warfare in Korea on an initially small experimental stage, but in expanding proportions. This directive was passed to the Commanding General, Far East Air Force, General Wayland in Tokyo. General Wayland then called into personal conference General Everest, Commanding General of the 5th Air Force in Korea, and also the commander of the 19th Bomb Wing at Okinawa, which unit operates directly under FEAF, Far Eastern. Put a pin in Far Eastern, we'll be coming back to that. Now you might say, um, but sir, but Matt, but Ghost Boy, this confession was co coerced, obviously, and he withdrew it upon his release and arrival back in the US of A. And to that I say, the US Army openly threatened him with a treason charge if he didn't retract, which was effectively tantamount to threatening him with the death penalty. You know. And what's more, using mosquitoes infected with yellow fever had been one of the projects that the scientists at Fort Detrick had begun work on in the years leading up to the start of the Korean War in 1951. And, you know, this has all the hallmarks of uh, Unit 731's influence. We also know that Truman increased funding for biowarfare capabilities in the years 1951 to 1953. And um, as Jeremy Kuzmarov writes, quote, a top secret order dated September 21st, 1951 from the Joint Chiefs of Staff Command authorized the field testing of anthrax weapons in Korea. Another report recommended the US be prepared to employ biological weapons wherever it is militarily advantageous. Uh, just a footnote here. This uh, latter memo was actually removed from the National Archives record uh, group 218 with 1,431 other declassified documents in 2008 as part of what the Washington Post described as a secret government program to disappear historical documents pertaining to biological warfare from public view. Anyway, um, Kuzmarov goes on to say, quote, Cylinders found to have released flies in Korea bore remarkable resemblance to those used in field tests within the United States. Dr. Joseph Needham, an expert on oriental medicine from Oxford University, headed an investigation which concluded the US carried out experiments in a type of bacteriological warfare Japan had specialized in, which spread vector insects like mosquitoes capable of transmitting disease from one body to another. This charge was confirmed by a team of international jurists who found flies infected with cholera. This team of jurists was a group called the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, and they pissed off the US government and spooked the spooks so effectively that the CIA ended up setting up their own 
left liberal group of human rights lawyers called the International Commission of Jurists, you know, to issue counter-propaganda. There's also the possibility as well that the scientists of Unit 731, you know, fully immune now from prosecution, beyond just handing over the research material they developed during World War II, there's every possibility that they had actually been recruited by the US government to help develop new weapons for use in Korea. Uh, Professor Masataka Mori, who is an expert on Unit 731, he said, quote, there are striking similarities between the diseases and weapons used by the Japanese military in China and those said to have been deployed by the United States against targets in North Korea. While the bomb casing material is different, the symptoms and methods reported are identical. Now, the team of investigators headed by Dr. Needham, they published the report of the International Scientific Commission for the investigation of the facts concerning bacterial warfare in Korea and China. That's the full um, title. They published that in 1952. The report runs to about 700 pages of painstakingly gathered material. And this includes photographs of US-made four-chamber bacterial bombs that had been recovered from the battlefield in Korea. And it also includes mention of Shiro Ishii having actually visited Korea twice in 1952 to consult with CIA and US Army officials. There's also the role um, played by Frank Olsen in bioweapons research and the Korean War. Now, we discussed him in our episode, uh, MK Ultra and the Void. I think that's what it was called last year. Check that out for um, you know a more in-depth account of his life and his mysterious death. Um, but we can't really discuss Olsen here without also talking about Sidney Gottlieb as well. So by early 1951, by early 1951, Gottlieb was being headhunted by Ira Baldwin because Baldwin was impressed with Gottlieb's in-depth knowledge of poisons and hallucinogenic drugs. Baldwin wanted Gottlieb to join the CIA and he approached him and, you know, he said words to the effect of, hey, bud, you know, Alan Dulles is looking for someone who can bring a bit of discipline to this thing that we've got going in the technical services division called Project Bluebird. And it involves, you know, trying to figure out how to use drugs to get people to talk to us or make them easier to control. But we're also creating a bioweapons program to run parallel to it. You know, do you want in? Now, Bluebird, obviously, forerunner of MKUltra, and just as with what officially became MK Naomi in early 1952, this kind of weird transgressive science had always appealed to Gottlieb. And the idea of actually being in charge of programs like that and given complete freedom to run them how he saw fit on a pretty much unlimited budget, that must have been irresistible, you know. And in what I suspect was meant to be a demonstration of Gottlieb's skills for the CIA, he was flown out to Tokyo in January of 1951 to review the work that was taking place at the Far East Command's Unit 406 Medical Laboratory. And Gottlieb brought his protege, Frank Olsen, with him. Unit 406 had expanded its work to 
dozens of Japanese labs by the time Gottlieb and Olsen arrived and they were asked to help coordinate work between 406 and Fort Detrick, which is where Gottlieb and Olsen had already made names for themselves in the US Army's bioweapon program. And to this end, they set up a secret research team inside Unit 406 that they called Unit 8003. And this is where the really dangerous stuff was cooked up. This was anthrax, cholera, typhoid, undulant fever. Very little detail is available about what exactly they did in Japan. Although it's known that thousands of monkeys and pigs and mice and rabbits were experimented on, you know. And there's enough circumstantial information to suggest that some of what they did went way beyond experimentation on animals. Um, This is from Gordon Thomas, quote, By April 1951, America and its allied forces had launched fierce counterattacks in Korea, which resulted in the capture of large numbers of North Korean prisoners. These were held in a camp on Koje Island in South Korea. That month, a US Navy landing craft fitted out as a laboratory by Unit 406 arrived offshore. Dr. Gottlieb was on board. The ship was reportedly there to deal with an outbreak of amoebic dysentery among the prisoners. 3,000 oral and rectal cultures were taken. In the following months, almost 20,000 prisoners were afflicted with the illness. 1,800 died. Throughout Asia, reports began to circulate that the prisoners had been used to test a bug for germ warfare. Newsweek summarized the allegations as North Korea and China alleged numbers of Chinese Reds tested on bubonic plague ship. The Associated Press ran a similar follow-up story. Finally, the respected Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, the organ of American Society of Tropical Medicine, reported the most unusual feature of the epidemic was its size. Suddenly, all further comment on the incident stopped. Years later, when William Colby appeared before congressional hearings, he said the CIA records for its biological warfare program for the period were, quote, within a quote, very incomplete because many had been destroyed in 1972 and 1973. He could not recall why. It was possible they included the full details of the mysterious dysentery outbreak amongst Korean prisoners. So by the time that Frank Olsen was falling out of that hotel window in New York, MK Naomi and MK Ultra were already becoming the stuff of legend, even to people inside the CIA, you know. And in fact, the strict secrecy and the near boundless freedom that had been granted to staff in the technical services division meant they effectively became a CIA inside the CIA, yet another CIA inside the CIA. They were accountable only to Sidney Gottlieb, and he was intent on discovering just how far out he could get with access to unlimited supplies of industrial strength drugs, viruses, poisons, and completely oblivious human test subjects.
Part two. Far out. The thing to keep in mind about MK Naomi is that like MK Ultra, it was basically a series of, you know, what if propositions? What if we could do this with a particular bacteria? What if we could induce heart attacks in a target from a distance? What if we could use car exhaust to deliver bioweapons, you know? A CIA internal um, investigation reported that the main objectives of the program only really became clearly defined over a period of, of years. And these were, one, to provide for a covert support base to meet clandestine operational requirements. Two, to stockpile severely incapacitating and lethal materials for the specific use of the technical services division. Three, to maintain in operational readiness special and unique items for the dissemination of biological and chemical materials. And four, to provide for the required surveillance, testing, upgrading, and evaluation of materials and items in order to assure absence of defects and complete predictability of results to be expected under operational conditions. So there's a 15-page summary report that the CIA submitted to uh, White House counsel Philip Buchan in 1975. And it goes into quite a lot of detail about the nature of MK Naomi. Although, you know, while reading it, you can't quite help but suspect that a lot is being strategically omitted, you know. The internal um, CIA investigation, or at least this final report, it appears to have been overseen by Carl Duckett. Now, Duckett wrote a covering letter addressed to Buchan in which he assured him that all possible steps were being taken to ensure total transparency. And he also said that he personally made sure he only selected staff from his own team with no previous connections to MK Naomi to investigate. It's probably worth bearing in mind that Duckett was an old boy and he'd been involved with the agency's deputy director of science and technology from the very, very beginning. And as well as being a well-respected leader in the agency's science department, he was also known for being one of the best um, salesmen the agency had. And that is to say, he could convince Congress to fund pretty much anything because he had a gift for uh, translating scientific jargon into English and massaging the darker implications of the agency's science projects when he was talking to people in Washington who, let's be honest, they preferred not to know too much anyway. So by the time that Duckett was writing his memo to Phil Buchan, he was the third highest guy on the ladder at Langley and he'd spent the better part of 30 years nurturing some truly wild research and development projects. Uh, in the future, we'll probably be doing a show about the CIA's race to find a missing Soviet sub that was partly financed by Howard Hughes, the search was, and it may well have been a limited hangout um, designed to disguise a much darker operation. But for now, all we need to know is Duckett was the guiding hand on that op, and his team had been the first to identify the nukes that the Soviets had placed in Cuba from surveillance photographs, which of course led to the missile crisis. And he was also keen on the possibilities of parapsychology, 
particularly, you know, remote viewing and telekinesis. Moreover, Duckett knew where a lot of bodies were buried. Uh, he was personally aware of the experiments with chemical weapons and mind-altering drugs that was going on at places like Edgewood um, Arsenal. From a June 2007 article in the Washington Post, quote, Carl Duckett, a senior CIA technologist, had said the testing program at Edgewood was not intended to find new techniques to be used offensively, but rather was an effort to detect if such drugs were being employed by others. This is a common defense the U.S. national security state drums up um, in support of its, you know, its, its little science experiments. We're doing it for defense purposes, not for offense purposes. Anyway goes on to say, quote, a document dated May 8th, 1973, mentions the existence of a 1963 account of agency scientists administering mind or personality altering drugs on unwitting subjects, that is, testing hallucinogens such as LSD on people without their knowledge at Edgewood. The document doesn't provide further details. One of the most notorious such cases involved Frank R. Olson, a CIA germ warfare expert who died in a fall from a hotel window in 1953, nine days after a CIA doctor spiked Olson's after-dinner drink with LSD. In 1975, President Gerald R. Ford invited Olson's family to the White House to apologize. The government also paid the family $750,000 dollars. The line between witting and unwitting test subjects seems to have been one that the agency and the army loved to blur with Naomi and with MKUltra. The US Department of um, Veterans Affairs, they produced a report in 2003 in which they went into uh, much more detail about the nature of these experiments. Quote, these experiments were conducted primarily to learn how various agents would affect humans. Other agencies, including the CIA and the Special Operations Division of the Department of the Army, were also reportedly involved in these studies. Only a small number of all the experiments done during this period involved mustard gas or lewisite. According to the 1984 NRC review, human experiments at the Department of Defense's Edgewood Arsenal involved about 1,500 subjects who were experimentally exposed to irritant and blister agents, including riot control agents, diphenylaminochlorosine, other ocular and respiratory agents, and mustard agents. So the report that Duckett and his staff submitted to Buchan in 1975 makes absolutely no mention of any of this. It does include plenty of other fascinating and disturbing information though, but there's a clear and I would say a sustained effort throughout to minimize and downplay the significance of much of it. And for one, it's revealed that Duckett's staff could find virtually no written records of MK Naomi. And they describe how uh, quote, the project was characterized by a compartmentation that was extreme even by CIA standards. And they could only dig up two files from their record center, or so they claimed. Um, and they had to piece together a list of staff involved with the project by studying um, funding records, by looking at the books. The report says, quote, Though some CIA-originated documents have been found in the project files, no records on such things as material control, receipt, 
delivery, destruction, etc. can be found. No documents relating to any possible operational use of the material can be found. The files as they exist are quite different from those normally maintained in the course of a typical CIA RED project. Uh, clearly, it was informal policy then to leave as little trace of MK Naomi on the official record as possible. And the question is, why? So we can only speculate, obviously. And normally I, I caution against doing that, but what the hell? There's enough in this report to make some pretty informed guesses. So remember that Naomi wasn't just about developing exotic new ways to kill people with chemicals and biological agents. It was also about figuring out how to build what they call delivery systems, you know, dart guns, umbrellas that shoot poison arrows from the tip, you know, that, the, real, the James Bond stuff, like we mentioned, you know, the heart attack rifles, the cancer lollipops, whatever the fuck. The CIA claims it had also repurposed cigarette lighters, wristwatches, fountain pens, rings, and chewing gum as delivery systems for chemical or biological weapons. So why would you be looking to develop these delivery systems? Well, you are the CIA, so obviously you have assassination on the brain. And in fact, one CIA scientist um, speaking to Hank Arborelli um, on condition of anonymity, they said, quote, our mission was pretty simple and to the point. Provide the CIA with every means available to maim or kill targeted groups or individuals through the use of toxic and lethal biochemical agents. We worked hard at it and we delivered. We figured out how to knock off key people, key guys, make death look as if from natural causes, such as methods to produce cancer and to induce heart attacks. Now, sure enough, you know, the report mentions that certain CIA officers were permitted access to MK Naomi whenever the program touched on something, you know, peculiar to their interests. And three names are mentioned at the outset here. Tom Caramessinas, Cornelius Roosevelt, and Ray Treacler. Now, Caramessinas worked with Cord Mayer, you know, Mary Pinchot Mayer's uh, ex-husband, worked with him on Operation Mockingbird and later supported the chaos operation. Caramessinas uh, was also a prime mover behind the overthrow of Allende in Chile. In fact, he cabled the station chief in Santiago and said, it is firm and continuing policy that Allende be overthrown by a coup. It is imperative that these actions be implemented clandestinely and securely so that the US government and American hand be well hidden. And just before um, Caramessinas was going to appear before the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978, he died of a heart attack. Uh, Roosevelt had been head of the Technical Services Division at one time, and he'd taken personal charge of an assassination plan against Fidel Castro that would have involved using poison. Uh, Roosevelt also worked with Sidney Gottlieb to develop a bioweapon that they intended to deploy in the Congo to kill Patrice Lumumba. And uh, Roosevelt had also volunteered himself for MK Ultra experiments. Uh, apparently, he took around half a dozen LSD trips. Roy um, Tricler 
was a CIA chemist attached to both Naomi and MKUltra. He was a whiz with poisons and he supplied most of the drugs used in Operation Midnight Climax. That's, you know, the famous agency experiment where Johns were taken to CIA finance brothels in San Francisco and Marin County and experimented on by agency scientists. Now, this is from John Marks, quote, the technical services staff scientists tested such MKUltra specialties as stink bombs, itching and sneezing powders, diarrhea inducers. Uh, Ray Tricler, the Stanford chemist, sent these harassment substances out to California for testing by White, along with such delivery systems as a mechanical launcher that could throw foul-smelling objects 100 yards, glass ampules that could be stepped on in a crowd to release any of Tricler's powders, a fine hypodermic needle to inject drugs through the cork in a wine bottle, and drug-coated swizzle sticks. So by the late 60s, the agency admits that at least 20 different biological weapons had been developed and were being maintained by the Army's uh, Special Operations Division in case the CIA needed to use them. And these weapons had been derived from what they vaguely describe as infectious viruses, um, as well as cobra venom, shellfish toxin, uh, botulinum, and microsporium gypsum, which is a fungus that infects the surface layer of the skin. And there were um, additional chemicals the agency and army had developed that could be used to destroy crops. And somewhat unnervingly, Carl Duckett mentions that there is a possibility that some of the materials may have been deployed. Um, a declassified internal memo from 1967 states that the agency and army had used crop-destroying agents in the field on at least three occasions, although... The wording of that is quite ambiguous because it says tested under field, con deployed under field conditions, sorry. So that could mean that they just, they tested them in a simulated environment, you know. But I would not put it past them to have actually used this shit for real. So naturally, everyone attached to MK Naomi, who was interviewed about the project, they all said they couldn't recall specifics of the program. And as Duckett's report says, quote, Roosevelt, Chief of Technical Services Division from 1960 to 1962, believed that discussion involving assassination took place but claimed to know few of the details and was skeptical as to the seriousness of such discussions. Tricler denied ever having received requests for such support or providing it, but these assertions appear incompatible with information he earlier provided to the IG's office uh, during its investigation of assassination attempts. He may constitute a connection between the MK Naomi project and the assassination plots involving Castro, as he was the officer responsible for Naomi during this period. The records show his giving direction in specific terms to the preparation of materials at Fort Detrick, matching those mentioned in the assassination schemes. Shall we get into some seriously out there MIB shit now. Um, first, I need to tell you something about um, the Church of Scientology, because back in the 1970s, L. Ron Hubbard decided to go to war with the US government. And he did this by infiltrating as many as 5,000 Scientology operatives into various agencies like the IRS, the DEA, the FBI, the Coast Guard Intelligence Agency, the American Medical Association, the Department of Justice, and 
so on. This is what was called Operation Snow White and its aims were many and insane. And the Scientologists involved wound up bugging federal buildings and stealing government documents. Lots and lots of documents, you know. A couple of years after Snow White had been exposed, the Washington Post carried a very interesting article in March of 1980 about an analysis of government records that the church had conducted. And although they claimed to have only studied documents they obtained under Freedom of Information Act requests, I'm willing to bet they probably still had a few classified files, you know, floating around from Operation Snow White. And what the Scientologists had discovered was pretty darn scary, friends. You see, Nixon had issued a presidential order uh, in 1969, and that was supposed to have banned any research or development or use of bioweapons, and this should have effectively put an end to M.K. Naomi. In a statement that he issued on November 25th, 1969, he was unequivocal about this, uh, and this is from the statement, quote, biological weapons have massive, unpredictable, and potentially uncontrollable consequences. They may produce global epidemics and impair the health of future generations. I have therefore decided that the United States shall renounce the use of the lethal biological agents and weapons and all other methods of biological warfare. The United States will confine its biological research to defensive measures such as immunization and safety measures. And the Department of Defense has been asked to make recommendations as to the disposal of existing stocks of bacteriological weapons. So by carefully scrutinizing the financial records of a CIA lab in Baltimore, the Church of Scientology figured out that the agency had made multiple payments for repairs and maintenance of a machine at um, this lab uh, that the, the Washington Post calls a biogen. And they made these payments for at least three or four years after Nixon's order. And this machine is used to manufacture, you know, weaponized uh, bacteria and viruses. So in other words, the agency saw Nixon, they heard Nixon, and they continued cooking up new pathogens anyway. And the church also got hold of an interagency memo that was dated July 10th, 1972. And this confirmed that bio and chemical weapons research was still ongoing. The agency had simply renamed MK Naomi to MK Search and devised a way to better disguise the funding stream. Now this speaks to what we've said multiple times before, what we said at the top of the show, which is that none of this shit ever really ends. Between Nixon's 1969 statement and 1972, in this one lab, alone in Baltimore. The agency had created hundreds of pounds of biological agents and lethal uh, microorganisms. And the church sent copies of its report to the Congressional Intelligence and Armed Services Committee, as well as the CIA and the Army. And an especially scary aspect of MK Naomi they discovered was something called Operation Big City. This is from Scientology's report. Quote, the CIA army team experimented with a variety of devices capable of disseminating a powder or gas into the air 
under covert conditions. Battery-driven dusters were installed in suitcases that had been soundproofed to muffle the noise. Similar devices were also constructed to sample the air to determine the effectiveness of the test. Personnel were protected with nasal filter packs. The primary test occurred February 11th to the 15th, 1956 in the New York City area, when a 1953 Mercury with tailpipes extending an extra 18 inches traveled only 80 miles but covered four turnpikes and tunnels. When the test car returned, it was washed to handle contamination and washed again a few days later. And even more has emerged since about the secret tests conducted by the agency and the army. And there are so many examples. We don't even really have time to get into them all. And there are probably more we'll, we'll never find out about. But I'll give you a few. A few um, choice um, selections from the 239 germ warfare experiments that we know took place between 1949 and 1969 alone. In 1950, the army spread a cloud of bacteria from a ship near the Golden Gate Bridge that moved inland and covered the entire Bay Area. In 1966, they broke light bulbs full of bacteria in the New York subway system to um, observe dispersal patterns. A lot of these experiments were about testing dispersal patterns. Um, ostensibly, they were aiming to simulate a biological attack from the Soviet Union. Uh, now, this bacteria is considered a human pathogen these days. And the army wrote a report about the subway experiment in which they said, quote, clouds engulf people as trains pulled away, but they brushed their clothing, looked up at the grating apron and walked on. No one was concerned. The army scientists also reported that five minutes after the bacteria had been released at the 23rd Street station, it was detected at every single station between 14th Street and 59th. And they ran some numbers and they estimated that over the course of the following week, about a million people in the New York metropolitan area had been exposed to this pathogen. But none of this really quite compares to Operation LAC, Operation LAC, which was a series of experiments that were stunning in their cruelty, really. In the 1950s, um, in an area of St. Louis that the army, by the way, described as a densely populated slum district. Uh, it was one that just happened to be 75% black too. The army set up dispersal units on rooftops and they sprayed zinc cadmium sulfide into the air. And the military told local officials that they were testing a smoke screen that might help disguise the city if the Soviets ever launched a bombing raid. Now, there was a conspicuous uptick in the number of people uh, contracting cancer in this area in the years after the experiments. And a 2012 study by a professor at St. Louis Community College called Lisa Martino-Taylor suggests that the army may have been mixing radioactive particles into the cadmium sulfide as well. So the same chemical was also spread by military planes over South Carolina and Georgia, the San Francisco Bay Area, South Dakota, Minnesota, and even off the east coast of, of Britain. You know, they're making it personal now. So there's a Project 112 and a sister project called SHAD, or Shipboard Hazard Defense. And this is where nerve agents like Sarin and VX were sprayed over Port and Down in the UK, parts of Canada uh, as well. 
Operation Sea Spray that involved dispersing clouds of bacteria over San Francisco in 1950. They, they really seem to hate San Francisco. Um, and the CIA helpfully tripled the rate of uh, whooping cough infections in Tampa, Florida, with a bunch of open-air experiments there in 1955. And while I was putting this episode together, I found a story about David Ferry that was very interesting. Now, JFK heads, you will know that Ferry is, of course, a person of interest in the Dallas hit. And in a meeting that he had in June of 1961 with a financial advisor called Herb Wagner and a Cuban exile called uh, Sergio Acacia Smith, Ferry mentioned that he'd once taken part in something he called Operation Mosquito. Now, Ferry may have been alluding to his participation in, or at least his knowledge of, Operation Mayday. And this was a, an experiment that took place in 1956, and it's when the U.S. Army Chemical Corps released millions of mosquitoes that were infected with yellow fever. Remember in Korea now? They released these mosquitoes in Savannah, Georgia, and Avon Park in Florida. And again, both of these areas um, are majority black. And in the months afterwards, residents developed uh, bronchitis, encephalitis, and typhoid. And as part of Project Shad, just to loop back to that for a moment, hundreds of Navy staff were sprayed with bacteria without their knowledge or consent either. In 1953 at Edgewood, uh, the Army deliberately exposed staff to mustard gas, um, again, without consent, and this was to test new decontamination methods. Uh, from 1951, over a period of about 20 years, uh, Dow Chemical, uh, the US Army, and Johnson & Johnson, they all got together and they sponsored a series of experiments that were led by one Dr. Albert Kliegman at a prison in Pennsylvania. And this is where inmates were forcibly injected with herbicides and uh, other chemicals like uh, dioxin, which is the active ingredient in the Agent Orange that Dow was manufacturing. And these, these same prisoners were also swabbed with toxic chemicals that caused their uh, skin to blister and peel off. And nine out of every 10 of the prisoners in Pennsylvania were subject to these procedures. And again, they never gave consent. I think... One of the more frightening instances of how out of control this can all get is the Dugway sheep incident. And this is what spurred Nixon to try to ban chemical and biological weapons testing in the first place. Now, the Dugway uh, Proving Ground is an army research site, and it's about 90 minutes outside of Salt Lake City in Utah. And they test all sorts of shit there, artillery, guns, uh, chemicals, bioweapons, you name it. One morning in uh, March of 1968, there was an epidemiologist from the University of Utah, and he phoned Dugway, uh, the base there, to inform them that 3,000 sheep had been found dead in an area called Skull Valley. And over the following days, you know, the number of dead sheep rose to 6,000, and the army inevitably denied any responsibility for it. But, you know, nobody really seems to have believed this. And in the days immediately preceding the incident, at least 
three separate operations involving the VX nerve agent had been conducted in the area of Skull Valley. One had been the, uh, the open air burning of about 600 liters of VX um, in a pit. Some shells had also been fired that were full of VX. And there had also been army aircraft spraying the area with the agent. And the military commissioned a study in 1970, and then they sat on it until 1998 when it was finally declassified and what everybody already knew was confirmed. So it's scary enough, you know, that so many sheep were killed for this totally insane reason. What's also frightening is that if the wind had been blowing in a different direction, all of that VX might well have swept over Salt Lake City. And there's a little bit of pub trivia for you here, which is that the Dugway Sheep incident um, served as the inspiration for Stephen King's The Stand, you know. So if ever you find yourself down the pub and a question about that comes up, keep that in the back pocket. So I close out this section now with some choice excerpts from an article called Germ War, the US Record. And this is from Cover Action Magazine. And this is just by way of demonstrating that it's incredibly unlikely that MK Naomi ever really ended and that the US does still use bioweapons in the field, you know, when the mood takes it. Quote, in 1971, the first documented case of swine fever in the Western Hemisphere showed up in Cuba. A CIA agent later admitted that he had been instructed to deliver the virus to Cuban exiles in Panama, who carried the virus into Cuba in March of 1971. This astounding admission received scant attention in the US press. In 1981, Fidel Castro blamed an outbreak of dengue fever in Cuba on the CIA. The fever killed 188 people, including 88 children. In 1988, uh, a Cuban exile leader named Eduardo Arocina admitted bringing some germs into Cuba in 1980. Four years later, an epidemic of dengue fever struck Managua in Nicaragua. Nearly 50,000 people came down with the fever and dozens died. This was the first outbreak of the disease in Nicaragua. It occurred at the height of the CIA's war against the Sandinista government and followed a series of low-level reconnaissance flights over the capital city. In 1996, the Cuban government again accused the US of engaging in biological aggression. This time, it involved an outbreak of thrips palmi, an insect that kills potato crops, palm trees, and other vegetation. Thrips first showed up in Cuba on December 12th, 1996, following low-level flights over the island by US government spray planes. The US was able to quash a United Nations investigation of the incident. Part 3, The Mind Blowers. 
I thought that we may as well discuss a chemical called quinuclidinyl benzylate, or BZ. Now, we've mentioned this compound a couple of times before, but, you know, we've never really gone deep on it. Uh, this is a chemical weapon, you know, but it's part of the broader matrix of unchecked insanity and horror that we are looking at tonight. So the army had been um, intrigued by the possibilities of a weaponized form of LSD for years by, you know, the mid-1960s. Um, about one and a half thousand soldiers had been exposed to acid as part of this research. Some of these troops, um, they enjoyed this their first trip so much that they set up a little smuggling operation out of Edgewood Arsenal, and they would steal tabs from the lab and, you know, presumably drop it themselves, sell it to other people, or spike the punch ball um, at GI dances. But the chemical core hadn't been able to develop a truly effective aerosolized form of acid. So there was a guy called Major General William Creasy, and he was one of the loudest voices pushing for a chemical alternative to missiles and bombs, because in his mind, the future of war was going to involve US planes dropping what he called madness gases on enemy cities. And it does make a certain amount of, you know, batshit sense um, in a way. You know, instead of leveling urban centers with all the expense and PR hazards that are involved in that, you could just blow the local population's mind and, and just take over while, the, while an entire city is, you know, tripping balls, man. So a pharmaceutical company called Hoffman La Roche, they'd been developing uh, medication to treat stomach ulcers when they created BZ uh, as part of this in 1951. And the drug, it works pretty well, but there was, you know, one drawback, which is it had a tendency to trigger nightmarish hallucinations and psychosis in people who took it. Army scientists at Edgewood Arsenal heard about this and Hoffman LaRoche gave them some samples. And between 1959 and 1975, the army ran multiple trials and um, experiments with BZ. And evidently, they seemed to believe that they'd finally achieved a major breakthrough in what they called um, psychochemical warfare. And part of why they were allowed to run wild in these experiments is because the CIA had handily inserted a couple of loopholes in new... Um, Federal Drug Administration policy that had been brought in the, in the early 60s. And these loopholes basically exempted um, the national security state uh, from regulation or oversight as long as they cited reasons of national security, you know. So BZ works by disrupting the transfer of chemicals around the nervous system and the brain. And like LSD, it shuts down the filter between the outside world and the mind, which means that people experience um, sensory overload. A BZ trip, that will last about one to three days. You know, a typical acid trip, much shorter than that. 
and plenty of test subjects who came out of the BZ trials, they reported being high for as long as eight weeks at a time with brief periods of resurfacing before the trip uh, resumed. I think I said once before that if a bad LSD trip is like a gunshot to the mind, any interaction with BZ at all is the equivalent of a nuke going off in the psyche, you know. Plenty of people who were dosed with it said they were never the same again. Uh, one army scientist described how BZ effectively induced a temporary form of madness. And on, on top of this, it also caused serious loss of, of motor function as well. So if you are looking for um, the perfect weaponized psychochemical compound, BZ is basically it, you know. There's one experiment the army conducted with BC in uh, May of 1962 that is hilarious and horrifying, you know, at the same time. So you've got James Ketchum and he was an army scientist and he built a fake army outpost and he had four soldiers attempt to function as a normal communications team while they were dosed with BZ. Now, one of these soldiers, codenamed L, he was given a placebo and he remained sober. Uh, two of them, they were codenamed H and C. They were given small doses. And the last was an army intelligence officer called Ronald Zadrozny. And he was given an insanity-inducing level of the drug. Um, and yeah, as the experiment progressed, this is from wearethemighty.com. Quote, Zadrozny needed the assistance of L to stand up and he would push people away who tried to help. H and C attempted to get the drug out of their system immediately. H began doing push-ups for hours while C went to sleep. Neither approach seemed to accelerate recovery and it took both men 24 hours to sober up. Despite their recovery, neither H or C were much help uh, with the military tasks. But the army wasn't content just leaving the men in the room. The team had missions, primarily compiling information radioed and called in to the outpost before they needed to relay information to a fake rear headquarters. L would handle nearly all of these tasks because H and C were out of it. Zadrozny, once he could stand and walk around, spent most of the weekend staring into camera lenses whenever they were exposed or attempting to leave the locked area. He would pace the walls of the outpost, checking for exits. Then he would grab his hat and jacket, put them on, tell the rest of the men goodbye and attempt to leave through the door. Every time he found it locked, he would get confused, angry, paranoid and try the handle for minutes. He attempted to escape through a medicine cabinet until H pulled him away. Finally, he'd begin another repetition, putting on his hat and jacket once more and saying goodbye to everyone. Ketchum wrote that it was only after hours of this process that Zadrozny finally pulled it together. Um, he tried the door a final time and turned to the room, telling the rest of the subjects, we're trapped. H then looked up from a magazine and told the room, I think he's getting better. So at Dugway Proving Ground, again, the army devised a series of exercises where uh, US troops would go on maneuver and conduct war games while BZ was sprayed over them. And this fell under Project Dark, believe it or not, Project Dark. And the researchers described this experiment as a great success. And naturally, you know, the US Army has 
denied ever deploying BZ outside of these experiments. They say they've never used it in war, but there have been allegations made that they used it in Vietnam. Uh, there was a French journalist called Pierre Darcourt. He said that 3,000 hand grenades full of BZ were used against the Viet Cong and civilians during Operation Masha and Operation White Wing. And there was a Dutch author as well called uh, Will Vervey. He interviewed Vietnamese witnesses and he concluded that BZ was used at least five more times by the US Army between 1968 and 1970. And BZ, you know, wasn't just used in experiments on soldiers either. Um, in the mid-1950s, black Americans, uh, many of them drug addicts, were dosed with LSD by CIA scientists at the National Institute of Mental Health Addiction Research Center in Kentucky. And some of them were kept high for as long as 77 days at a time. And they'd be given a few days to sober up and then they'd be put back under. But by the mid-60s, you know, LSD is a bit old hat. So these scientists returned to the uh, Mental Health Addiction Research Center, chose uh, black patients again and started dosing them with BZ. And the scientists reported that poisoning could occur at doses of 0.5 uh, milligrams, with the effect being loss of vision, dehydration, psychosis, heart palpitations, increased body temperature, and eventually slipping into a coma, you know. And through the late 60s, the army and the CIA were also very keen on the role BZ could potentially play in uh, putting down domestic unrest in American cities. And they developed what they called a mechanical bee, which was this tiny drone armed with a hypodermic needle that could be used to inject protest leaders with BZ in order to humiliate them and, you know, demoralize the broader movement. The CIA uh, wrote an internal memo uh, around 1967-68 in which they said, quote, trends in modern police action and warfare indicate the desire to incapacitate reversibly and demoralize rather than kill the enemy with the advent of highly potent natural products, psychotropics, and immobilizing drugs, a new era of law enforcement is being ushered in. And by 1970, the army and the CIA had a stockpile of 26,000 different drugs and over 50 tons of BZ alone. And according to uh, Martin A. Lee, he's the guy who wrote Acid Dreams, 50 tons of BZ would be enough to dose everybody in the world and put them under. Um, and, you know, once again, the army and the agency had inserted loopholes in uh, President Ford's order uh, banning the development of or testing of uh, chemical weapons, which meant that, you know, they could continue manufacturing even more hallucinogens and nerve agents, you know, as long as they cited national security concerns. So in declassified documents that were released in response to the church committee investigation, it was revealed that not only had the CIA failed to destroy the shellfish toxin that we mentioned and the other poisons that it had stored at Fort Dietrich 
after Nixon's order of 69. Agency said it had forgotten where they'd been stored and, you know, they'd only recently rediscovered them just before the church committee came calling. Yeah, the, the, um, it also turned out that they'd been developing new weaponized hallucinogens and one of them, S341, is described vaguely as BZ-like, only more effective, which is a pretty terrifying sequence of words. been thinking about quite a lot while I've been reading about all this is the proliferation of these weapons around the world. You know, it's crossed my mind that it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the states shared some of its biological toys with friendly countries. You know, they do it all the time with missiles and guns. And we know, for example, that the CIA and MI5 did collaborate on MK Ultra type experiments in Britain. You know, we know that Frank Olsen was a party to similar experiments in Germany. We know that Iraq under Saddam, when he was still, you know, an ally of the West in the 80s, he was suspected of having access to a stockpile of BZ. And we also know that the US has biolabs located all over the world. Um, you could have a situation where a group of actors inside the security state with malevolent intentions intentionally release something to achieve, you know, some other objective. Uh, I reckon the most obvious example of this would be the 2001 anthrax attacks, which I'm fairly certain was an intelligence operation. That is certainly one of the, the spookiest stories um, to come out of that whole 9-11 era, you know. And one of my um, favorite tidbits about those attacks is that a couple of weeks after the first envelope containing anthrax was sent, um, Iowa State University destroyed their anthrax archive with the um, permission of the FBI and the CDC. And this meant, um, per an article 
in the New York Times from November 2001, quote, the rush to destroy the spores may have eliminated crucial evidence about the anthrax in the letters sent to Congress and the news media. If the archive still existed, it would by no means solve the mystery, but scientists said a precise match between the anthrax that killed four people and a particular strain in the collection might have offered hints as to when that bacteria had been isolated and, perhaps, how widely it had been distributed to researchers. And that, in turn, might have given investigators important clues to the killer's identity. I mean, come on. Come on. And then, you know, you have the possibility of disaffected insiders, you know, someone with money problems or an axe to grind just smuggling some of this shit off of research bases or selling the knowledge of how to manufacture it on the black market. And then there's just plain old incompetence and human error. And it's difficult to disentangle this from something more sinister. And in some ways it matters not really, since a big enough screw up would be indistinguishable from an orchestrated event, you know, and we would all be fucked anyway, friends. So I would like to close out this one by discussing a couple of especially unnerving news items from more recent times, because in researching this episode, I haven't been able to stop pondering them, you know, just turning them this way and that in my mind. In 2015, the Department of Defense admitted that it had accidentally shipped anthrax to every state in the US and nine other countries. This is from Forbes. Quote, This current scorecard shows that anthrax shipments from Dugway Proving Ground were sent to 194 labs in all states, three territories, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the US Virgin Islands, and Washington, D.C., and to Japan, the United Kingdom, South Korea, Australia, Canada, Italy, Germany, Norway, and Switzerland. This is a marked increase from the initial May report of 18 labs in nine states, and then the June edition of two countries. I mean, how does that happen? You know, and not only had they shipped the anthrax, they didn't irradiate it so it would be inactive and they never tested it to see whether it was live they just sent that out into the world and then you have Fort Dietrich which is a profoundly upsetting and haunted place I've decided um, the FBI investigated it as being the possible source of the anthrax used in the 2001 attacks since what was called the Ames strain had been first engineered at Dietrich, it's suspected. It's also where the US Army Medical Institute of Infectious Diseases is located. Um, in 2019, the CDC actually issued it a cease and desist notice because of multiple uh, safety breaches that had occurred there. Uh, these are some choice examples from a, a selection of heavily redacted CDC documents that you can find online. Quote, inspectors observed an individual partially entering a lab without respiratory protection. Uh, other staff members were seen performing procedures with a redacted 
non-human primate on a necropsy table, uh, other infected non-human primates were housed in open cages nearby. There were also serious failings with, uh, you know, waste disposal, wash water was contaminated, sterilization protocol was ignored, and equipment maintenance was piss poor at best. Now I've seen people linking this to a half dozen or so mysterious outbreaks of a, a still unidentified respiratory illness in a, I think it was a nursing home in Fairfax County in Virginia, and also an outbreak of something similar in a town called Springfield um, nearby. And these occurred around the same time as the CDC issued its cease and desist notice. But, you know, I got to be honest and responsible here. Um, I do not know enough about all of that to do much more than just suggest you go read up about these outbreaks and see what you make of them. Um, I'm just mentioning them here so that I don't get angry emails from people who think I'm, you know, trying to, to cover for the man or something. So I suppose it was going to be impossible to make it through this episode without at least a brief discussion of COVID. And again, if for no other reason than because I'll get angry emails if I don't mention it. Now, I don't really go for the the pandemic theories, you know. And whenever I've tried to like read about gain of function research and protein spikes, I've realized I'd much rather be doing literally anything else. So I don't go any further, you know. But, you know, if you are knowledgeable about it and you have some stuff you think that I might find interesting, then, you know, feel free to send it my way. But because I'm not a scientist and because I know nothing about viruses, really, I've mostly avoided getting too deep into the weeds about where COVID originated. And also, again, um, the way that, like, over here, the British government reacted to COVID, functionally indistinguishable from um, if it had been deliberately released as part of some, you know, grand orchestrated plot, because they just, they did what they always do with these moments of crisis, which they just used it as an excuse to loot and pillage, you know, uh, the public purse and transfer untold billions into the the bank accounts of their wealthy friends. So, you know, but I do find it interesting that as of 2022, it still seems to be an unresolved issue. You know, where did COVID actually come from? And I find it even more interesting that the lab leak hypothesis seems to be dismissed out of hand, you know, by commentators as a wild conspiracy theory if the United States is implicated. However, you know, shall you have noticed, those same sensible commentators suddenly become quite open-minded to man-made origins if there's a chance we can somehow pin it all on China, you know. So before I go any further, um... I need you to be aware that lab leaks of dangerous pathogens are pretty common, more common than I would have uh, initially suspected. There are lots of examples, actually, from all around the world, but um, just to focus on the United States, because that's, you know, what we're uh, talking about tonight. Here's a small selection, okay. 
1978, foot and mouth disease escaped from the, the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. I say escaped. Uh, it may have been released deliberately. And then in 2004, there were another two um, releases of foot and mouth at Plum Island. This time it infected all the animals inside the center instead of all the animals roaming wild outside. Uh, as well as the, the 2001 attacks, anthrax escaped from containment at Fort Detrick again in 2002. We've also mentioned the ac accidental uh, shipping of anthrax um, the other year. In August of 2002, a microbiologist was uh, accidentally infected with West Nile virus while he was performing a necropsy on a blue jay. In October 2002, another scientist accidentally punctured themselves uh, with a syringe that was also infected with West Nile virus. In 2004, there was a major incident when the College of American Pathologists released the H2N2 flu strain. Now this is from New Scientist. The virus that caused the 1957 Asian flu pandemic has been accidentally released by a lab in the US and sent all over the world in test kits, which scientists are now scrambling to destroy. The flu testing kits were sent to some 3,700 labs between October 2004 and February 2005 by the College of American Pathologists, a professional body which helps pathology laboratories improve their accuracy by sending them unidentified samples of various germs to identify. Now, you know, I'm all for science. I'm all for progress and whatnot. But this list of um, uh, accidental lab leaks, it goes on and on and on. You can find a pretty informative one on Wikipedia. And in fact, there was a COVID breach in 2021 in Taiwan when a lab assistant was bitten by an infected mouse. And a professor called Malcolm uh, Kasadaban died in 2009 when he was exposed to the plague bacteria at a lab in Chicago, and so on, and so forth, and so it goes. With all this in mind, I was very interested to read what Jeffrey Sachs had to say about the origins of COVID in May of this year. Now, I'm sure you know who he is, but just in case, Jeffrey Sachs is a well-regarded economist, and you know he's frequently named as one of the most influential academics in the world by, you know, outlets like Time and stuff. Uh, he endorsed Bernie in 2020 and he advised him on economic policy and he was also the chairman of the Lancet's COVID-19 Commission. And in an article written with a colleague of his called Neil Harrison uh, for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists, they flatly state, quote, much could be learned by investigating US-supported and US-based work that was underway in collaboration with Wuhan-based institutions, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. It's still not clear whether the intelligence community investigated these US-supported and US-based activities. If it did, it has yet to make any of its findings available to the US scientific community for independent and transparent analysis and assessment. If... On the other hand, the intelligence community did not investigate these US-supported and US-based activities, then it has fallen far short of conducting a comprehensive investigation. 
And then it goes on to describe um, the four highly adverse consequences, as they describe it, of um, this lack of, of transparency and accountability. They say that first, you know, public trust in the ability of U.S. scientific institutions to govern the activities of U.S. science in a responsible manner has been shaken. They say the investigation of the origin of SARS-CoV-2 has become politicized within U.S. Congress because of this lack of action, this lack of transparency. Uh, they also say that U.S. researchers with deep knowledge of the possibilities of a laboratory-associated incident have not been enabled to share their expertise effectively. And they say that fourth, the failure of NIH, one of the main funders of the U.S.-China collaborative work, to facilitate the investigation into the origins of COVID-19 has fostered distrust regarding U.S. biodefense research activities. And then after this was published uh, in follow-up interviews, uh, Jeffrey Sachs went on to say that he is actually fairly convinced that COVID-19 develops out of U.S. lab biotechnology, and he's not the only one cleaving towards man-made origins. Uh, in 2020, Sir Jeremy Farrar, a British diplomat, he said in an email to Dr. Anthony Fauci that he was also fairly convinced that the virus was man-made and that it spilled out of a research lab. And then... Uh, Tedros uh, Adhanom, who is the head of the World Health Organization, he's also said to privately believe that the virus was engineered in a lab somewhere. So you don't even have to believe in, you know, quote, pandemic. You don't have to believe in that to acknowledge that some pretty serious people are receptive to the idea of COVID having man-made origins. And I suspect that we will probably never know for sure because, you know, all that seems to be happening here is a global Mexican standoff between, you know, major powers. No side really wants to expose the other because that might uncover, you know, their own rather murky history of shady scientific research. So everyone makes noise, you know, which make, which in kayfabe makes it sound like you really care about getting to the bottom of it, but, you know, on the DL, probably best that none of us prod the sleeping dogs now. And this sort of brings us full circle because if I've convinced you of nothing else this episode, I hope I've at least shown that when it comes to this type of thing, you know, weird science, bioweapons, and MK Naomi, psychochemical warfare, and then engineering devastating pathogens for war or profit or just for the sheer fuck of it. There's no such thing as too far if the conditions are right. You know, if you are given sufficient cover from outside scrutiny, if money is just shoveled into your pet project, there's no limit to what you'll try. And again, at Fort Detrick, construction of the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasure Center was completed in 2008. And as early as 2006, people were pointing out that this lab would be in violation of international law and its work would trigger a new biological arms race. Because despite the 1972 um, Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention, it was understood that the main purpose of this new lab at Dietrich would be to develop the world's most dangerous viruses and bacteria to simulate bioterror attacks. So you can't blame people for being paranoid 
when there's a documented track record of recklessness and abuse and cover-ups around, you know, bioweapons, chemical weapons, and just this entire field of scientific study in general, particularly if the uh, intelligence community or the, the military industrial complex is connected to it or funding it somehow. And this, I think, is the real legacy of M.K. Naomi and the other research projects that the CIA and the army sponsored. A total lack of transparency and accountability. That has just become the norm now. It's become expected. And in fact, you know, because of the sheer overload of information that we are, we are subjected to every single day, even when some major revelation or another you know, does emerge. When it turns out that Jeff Sachs is saying there's a good chance the last couple of years are entirely the fault of people being let off the leash to get to mischief in some government lab somewhere. Most people can only shrug, you know, and it's easy to understand why, because really, what difference would it make if tomorrow we found definitive proof that, you know, not only was COVID man-made, but what the hell, it actually was part of some intricate global plot to reset the social order or whatever the theory is. Because a kind of meta function of projects like MK Naomi and MK Ultra and this broader culture of secrecy and unchecked abuses of power is to kind of drive home a very clear and definitive message to the rest of us which is that you can't do shit about any of this. In 2005, scientists at the CDC and Mount Sinai, uh, Sinai, remember, being the employer of a number of MKUltra and Naomi researchers in the past, guys like Harold Abramson, for example. Well, the CDC and Mount Sinai announced that they'd reconstructed the Spanish flu virus. So that was 2005. Who knows what they've been doing with that sample over the last 17 years. Right now, Captain Tripps could be sitting in a jar in a lab somewhere. And as said so eloquently in Jurassic Park, your scientists were so obsessed with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. All it takes is one moment of carelessness by some lab technician who's worried about an unexpected bill or brooding over being passed over for that promotion. Maybe their dog got sick or they're starting to regret making their relationship open. Polly doesn't work for everyone, you know? And while they're thinking about this, they take their eye off the ball for a split second, and boom, the candle is snuffed. That rough beast's hour will have come round at last, baby, and it'll be on the next flight to Bethlehem. And the question is, what are you going to do about it then?
Today, tales of war and the war. 